Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. This is our second installment of the fifth Noir at the Bar Chicago live reading. Uh, last episode, you heard from Jedediah Ayers and Christian Tabordo, and a little bit about our trip to and from the event. And in this episode, we're bringing you the other half of the event. We are. We're going to kick it off um, kind of right after our little little break that we took there to be able to get some beverages and smoke and whatever else people do on those little breaks, mingle. And uh, we're going to bring it in with Ed Kurtz, who reads about drug muling gone wrong. And so wrong, so <laughs> unbelievably wrong, that it's, it's, beyond, it's, beyond, it's beyond what you can possibly imagine. <laughs> I will tell you... Um, <sighs> And, and for, for those of you who have listened to the first um, episode, the first part of this, the first half of this, sometimes you, the war at the bars just kind of naturally, you know, have a theme. And based on what Ed was reading and, and as he was reading the story, I was thinking, oh, this, this is going to kind of take us away from the theme that I thought was building. And um, I don't know, man, everybody surprises you <laughs> sometimes. So we'll see if you, if you make the same conclusion. And then, after that, we close this out with Scott Phillips, who reads a nonfiction piece, which, uh, from, from Scott's own mouth, he has never done a noir at the bar before. And I, I have to hazard a guess that maybe nobody has read a nonfiction piece at noir at the bar. What do you think? Um, probably. You're probably right about that. So Scott reads his article in its entirety from the Riverfront Times, and uh, that article is called The Bootlegger Who Took Down the KKK. Good stuff. Really good stuff. And I actually have I have a copy of the Riverfront Times with that article. Really cool uh, art on the cover. He got the, he got the whole cover. Like they did a, an illustration and he's got the title. You know, so he's like the, I don't know, is there a word for like what the main story in a in newspaper is? Hmm. He's got the no. lead story. I don't know. But, sure, um, maybe. I have no idea. Kind of a big deal, and it's actually a really cool story. So here's what I like about this. So you got a guy like Scott Phillips, and, and he's really established in the crime scene. He's got his own books out. He's deep into Noir at the Bar. Um, and so you know him so much for crime fiction, but you don't really think about, like, what brought this person to, to you know, a love of crime fiction. It could be that he read a bunch of crime fiction. It could be that he's just interested in like the idea of crime and stuff. So this kind of takes us in another direction where he's telling a story about something that like it's a it's a read you know, it's a historical article about something that happened in and around St. Louis. So um while I'm, while he's reading this, it's kind of dawning on me like he's fascinated, at least with this story, with something that actually happened. And you don't see that very much like you could see someone read a story or read their book that's crime related and think okay I can see you know uh, an influence from this writer or this writer but you never think man this dude was just like so into the idea of this actual crime that happened in history that well, that was really cool to have a different kind of flavor of of crime because everything he's seeing actually happened and it's probably you know when you when it boils down to it as good of a story as you know some of the fiction that we read. It's kind of cool. With 100% less singing than the first two readers. <laughs> no singing at all. Yeah. So. I will say, uh, I, I get what you're saying. And I think it's that, you know, so people write this kind of stuff all the time, but they do it because it's their job. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's probably some kind of passion there for, for this story um, in order to take a fiction writer, um, you know, to kind of go, I don't want to say out of his comfort zone. Maybe he's written stuff like this before, but you know, not not what he's known for. So yeah, absolutely. There's got to be some kind of love for that period or this particular these characters or, or some by characters. I mean, there's yeah. some characters in this, you know. Yeah, like something about that story just like you know struck a chord. I guess almost like that William Gay book, Little Sister Death, because that was inspired by, you know, a legendary story too. So very true, yeah. very very true, and ghosts ghosts so um we're gonna turn it <laughs> there are no ghosts in the scott phillips story i don't think yeah there was was oh yeah oh you know what there, there was, was well there was talking about like how some people talk about a place being haunted so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. sorry i was doing the william gay thing but yeah 
any rate, um, I think at this point we should turn it over to us at uh, Noir at the Bar, <laughs> Chicago, number five. Take it away, Robin Livius. Our next reader is going to the restroom in case you didn't hear him, so we're going to stand up here for seven, eight minutes, I guess, to, until he gets back. <laughs> did, did one of you guys pick the music? Who picked Real Big Fish? Nobody. Really? No. <laughs> been someone from that side of the bar. Thank you, whoever that was. That was fantastic. Um, so we had two readers. We have two readers to go. Um, some of the readers brought books. They are available for sale. They are right there and will be available for at least five minutes after the reading is over. Um, <laughs> over on the table over there are some, um, we call them posters. They're little posters for the event. Feel free to grab one. And if you're really nice, I'll let you use my silver Sharpie and you can have the readers sign them. Um, what else do we got? He's back. That was really fast. Are you sure? That's you good? I didn't. Was make the it. door? Was the door locked? I didn't no, make it all the, the way. door doesn't lock. Did you guys see that? It's like the weirdest bathroom. Yeah, it's like an open toilet with the door that doesn't lock. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's a loving bathroom. We call that a St. Louis bathroom. It was warm and sweet. Warm and sweet. If we're done talking about his bathroom habits, we're gonna. All right, well, our next reader might be doing a little pee-pee dance while he's up here. Um, so uh, his name is Ed Kurtz, and here's his bio that he's so thoughtfully sent to us. Thank you very much for that. Ed Kurtz is a Southern Fried crime writer living in exile in Minneapolis. He's the author of Nausea, The 42, and the forthcoming horror noir novel, The Rib, from which I remake the world, which is an awesome title. I wish I thought of that. Did someone else get credit for that? Uh, somebody else does have credit for that. <laughs> Among other books, Ed's short fiction has been featured in Best American Mystery Stories and Best Gay Stories, as well as Thuglet, Shotgun Honey, and Crime Factory. Ladies and gentlemen, Ed Kurtz. Thank you. I'm Ed Kurtz. The story is called Mules. When the AC unit finally blew the curtain hard enough to wrap it around the steel casing, the puke yellow glare from the street light stabbed directly into Mary Jo Ford's eyes and forced her awake. She tried rolling over away from the window, but the frigid motel air raised goosebumps on her back and she could hear some woman hollering in the parking lot and then there was the matter of the smell. Mary Jo groaned, slid up to lean against the headboard, which was screwed into the wall. She threw a crusty glance at the clock on the nightstand, also screwed in, and saw that it was only half past two in the morning. She felt disoriented, and it took her a minute to remember where she was. Presidio, Texas, was where she was. Just across from Okinawa, where she had been. And the, from the smell of things, Hank had gone and shit the bed. <laughs> Christ Jesus, Mary Jo muttered. She leaned over to switch on the lamp. The light from it was somehow worse than the street light outside. Everything here was yellow, aged beyond further use. Hank sprawled out on the queen bed, half under the sheets and half dangling out like a photograph of someone drowning. Mary Jo knuckled the corners of her eyes, blinked away the white spots, and immediately saw the mess soaking through the top sheet. They'd had some crazy nights together, Hank and her. Crank crystal grass laced with Christ knew what, but this was the first time she'd ever known him to soil himself in his sleep. She pinched her nostrils closed and made a hog-calling noise. Woo-wee! <laughs> Last night was a celebration, all right. There'd been Sheevis Regal and a rock so fat she had to break it up to fit the smaller crumbs in the pipe. They talked about snagging one of the girls working the rooms downstairs, roll around a bit, maybe take some pictures with the Polaroid, but she was spent before they could get together enough to put the plan to action. And by then, she didn't much care anymore. Hank was flying high, and Mary Jo crashed hard and fast. She didn't know when Hank followed suit, but now she was up and he was still down, and she was going to have to do something about this goddamn stink. She threw a punch at his shoulder hard. His torso gave with the impact, sank back. His thin, sandy blonde hair spilled down over his stubbly face. Hell, Hank, she grunted. 
You gotta wake up, this ain't hygienic like. She thumped a knuckle against the crown of his skull. He didn't so much as moan. Mary Jo said, oh no, oh hell. The woman outside shrieked louder, still railing against the cops to whoever would listen, and quite a few who would rather not. Mary Jo brushed Hank's hair away from his face and peeled back the eyelids with her thumb. He was, as she suspected, dead. They'd met Octavio at the dentist's office on Boulevard Libre Comercio in Ojanaga, as prescribed the afternoon before. The dentist was Octavio's uncle. Under the flickering bulb in the one John bathroom, he unzipped a blue and white duffel and showed them what they'd come for, a pile of condoms packed fat with Mama Coca. Mary Jo thought they looked a little like white sausages. Octavio bought the, brought them a two-liter bottle of orange soda to help get the pills down and called Hank and Mary Jo as polka moolas. The soda was gone before they managed to swallow just two each. The rest took up another two bottles and most of the remaining daylight. Mary Jo hated that orange soda and the fact that it was warm only made it worse. In the evening after sunset, she and Hank waddled back to the Impala, parked crookedly on the boulevard and said nothing as he turned back toward the border. When the border patrol grilled him, he could barely speak. The officer searched the Impala, found nothing of interest. They rolled on through back to the good old U.S. of A. A couple of calves of blow wrapped tautly in greased latex, resting painfully in each of their bellies. God almighty, Mary Jo sobbed, hunkered down on the edge of the bed farthest from Hank's body. She let herself have a good cry. There never was anything quite approaching love between them, and she had no inclination to embellish their history now. But they'd had some good times. I miss bad ones too, but most of the good. When at last her tear ducts dried up and the shuddering relented, she went round the bed to the bathroom and washed her face, trying to remember not to pick at the scab at the corner of her mouth. Hank hated that. The pig, not the scab itself. She then started a hot bath, and while the faucet sputtered into the tub, she took a damp towel back into the main room for what she hoped was going to be the worst part of it looking for the product among the mess on the sheets. It was, after all, bought and paid for. She still had to deliver. Gagging, Mary Jo went to work. She found it necessary to take a break every five minutes or so, duck back to the bathroom, breathe in the hot steam. And when, at long last, she was done, she was distressed to discover that the product Hank swallowed back in Okanaga was still inside him. I'm so sorry, baby, she said softly frantically waving her hand an inch from her face. But that's going to have to come on out. <laughs> First, she lowered him on into the scalding bath water, underpants and all. The water burned her hands and quickly fogged with filth. She let him soak for a bit while she tended to balling up the soiled sheets and double-checking that the door was locked up tight. Then she withdrew Hank's butterfly knife from the pocket of his jeans on the floor. A scalpel, she realized, would have been better suited for the task at hand, but who carried a scalpel around with them? <laughs> she fought against the weight for a few minutes, struggled to keep his face above the water. He kept sliding down, stopping only when the murky water slapped against his swollen eyelids. It didn't matter, and she knew it didn't matter. After, she just pulled out the plug and watched as it swirled on noisily, chokily down the drain. His body gleamed, shone wet in the fluorescent light. She studied the tattoos that dotted his flesh, one for his mama that he'd gotten in county from a lowrider with a homemade gun. That one was on his left bicep, and on the same place on his right was one spelled out Libby, who he says she shouldn't worry about. Libby's gone, baby, he says. His mama was gone, too. Everybody Hank loved was gone to hear him tell it, and everyone who loved him. Mary Jo didn't know for sure if she ever did, and, or if she did now, but she never said as much. She was afraid it might be a lie. She was afraid that someday he would get her name inked on his skin, only to coo softly to some other bitch that Mary Jo's gone, baby, Mary Jo's gone. <laughs> she thought if she had that lowrider's tattoo gun, she would needle her name onto him right now, a last remembrance before the cutting began. 
Hank was skinnier than a starved hound, just skin wrapped tight around corded muscles and equally narrow bones. Mary Jo was thankful for that because it seemed to make her job that much easier. His body was like a road map, every section clearly marked. She began with a soft bit underneath the sternum, uncertain how hard to press on the handle. Black-red blood beaded at the tip of the knife, but she quickly realized she was going to have to put more elbow grease into it. She propped her knee up on the edge of the tub and jimmied her opposite foot between the toilet and the two-near cabinet beside it, jockeying for leverage. Once that was settled, she hauled a deep breath into her breast and stabbed Hank like she hated him. The blade sank clear to the hilt with a crunch, five inches at least, and a whistling gust sang out of Hank's mouth. Mary Jo yelped, staggered back, and fell over the toilet. The handle of the butterfly knife stuck straight up from Hank's chest. Mary Jo collected herself, breathed in good air, and exhaled the bad, just like the counselor lady at the gory unit back in Huntsville advised. Once she felt sufficiently composed, she resumed her position on the edge of the bathtub, gripped the handle again, and started to saw. Business is business, she told herself, over and over as Hank gradually split open and the tears spilled down her blood-hot cheeks. In the end, Mary Jo cut Hank deep lengthwise from sternum to groin and more shallowly across his midsection to form a seeping red plus sign. The tub, never that white to begin with, was now spattered with blood, as were the walls and the floor and Mary Jo herself. She took a moment to throw the seat up on the john and empty her own guts through a retching series of false starts and finally, a torrential stream from deeper inside of her than she thought possible. She was slick with sweat from crown to toe, and despite the heat, she juddered like a junkie. All right, then, she rasped at the ruin of Hank's midriff. Give me what you got, baby doll. We sure as shit didn't go down to Mexico for nothing. With that, Mary Jo Ford dug her fingers beneath the flaps in Hank's gut and pulled them back and apart with a wet snap. To finish the job, she retrieved the knife and cut away at connecting tissues and stubborn organ meat, opening them wider and wider, ever baffled by the glistening red mass inside a body and how in hell any doctor could make sense of it. But she knew a stomach when she saw one, or she saw Hank's now. So she steeled herself to rip it apart when something caught her eye and forced a shuddering shriek out of her throat. It was, unmistakably, a tiny hand. The hand moved, balled slowly into a loose fist, and released again. It was red and wrinkled and smaller than a newborn baby's. Mary Jo had popped one out herself in another life, she knew. In a fraction of a second, she'd seen the thing. She'd registered its stubby fingers, even the minuscule nails that edged the tips, and it moved. By Christ, it moved. Stupidly, she whispered, Hello? She wrinkled her nose and shook her head, angry at herself. God damn, she thought, it's the rock, it's gotta be the rock, I've done gone crazy. <laughs> to verify her conclusion, she rose and leaned back over the eviscerated remains of poor dead Hank. The hand remained. The hand still moved. Mary Jo slapped a hand tacky with blood over her mouth to stifle the next scream. She wasn't crazy. She dug into Hank's corpse to rescue whatever struggled inside of him. At 15, in the clinic that frequently served as a maternity ward in the McCullough County Juvie Detention Center, Mary Jo Ford gave birth to a baby girl all red and squalling. The girl child was gone before Mary Jo could so much as brush her fingers across the wretched creature's face, but she'd gotten a good enough look to burn into her brain for the rest of her life. She saw that baby girl almost every time she shut her eyes, even all these years later. The creature that stirred amidst Hank's ropey, stinking entrails was equally wretched to her judgment, but smaller by half. Its left half was more developed than its right, with an arm and a leg and five digits wriggling at the end of each. The opposite side was shriveled and stick-thin. She could make out its tiny ribcage jutting up beneath translucent flesh, its small round belly that poked out above the red mass of its groin that pinned it to Hank's guts. 
The face was small and pinched, too small for the proportionally oversized head upon which not a single hair sprouted. Mary Jo gazed deep into the thing's tiny black eyes, and she decided that they did not see her back. It opened its slit of a mouth, and it mewled softly. What are you? She wanted to ask, but she knew there would be no point. Instead, she poked tremulous fingers into the quivering red mass at the thing's middle and peeled it back, revealing what looked like an umbilical cord snaking from its belly into Hank's stomach. Also revealed to her was the creature's sex. He was a boy, and knowing this, no longer a creature. He was only a boy. I'm gonna get you out of there, she said quietly to the child. Her eyes and nose starting to drip again. Hold tight, little fella. I'm gonna get you out. Now, pregnancy in men, Mary Jo reckoned, was a biological impossibility. And Hank, she knew perfectly damn well, was all man. So as she cradled a desiccated child in gore-stained arms on the bed, she concluded that it had always been with Hank. It was always inside of him. Which, if true, made him not Hank's baby, but his baby brother. A little twin, born at last, if 30-some-odd years too late. I expect I ought to call you Hank, too, now. She cooed at little Hank. Little Hank sputtered and shivered, his lame arm twitching and round, black eyes rolling. Hush now, Mary Jo was going to take care of you. I'm practically your big sister, don't you know? Little Hank flopped his lumpy red head against her breast and burbled. Well, the baby fussed as best it could on a blood-stained motel hand towel atop the bed, Mary Jo finished what she started with Hank. She slid open his stomach sack, sliced down the length of his large intestines. Of the four Easter eggs he'd swallowed, she recovered three. The last was reduced to a loose flap of latex, its contents absorbed into Hank's body while he slept. The damn thing burst, and he OD'd. Mary Jo gulped down the laxative they'd bought at the corner store in a hurry, suddenly panicked, saying what happened to her any minute. It did its work quickly and efficiently, and after standing naked in the tub under the hot spray for a few minutes, Hank's carved up remains between her feet. She rinsed off the product and lined them up next to the sink, seven and all, one-eighth less than they promised to deliver. She bit her lower lip. Little Hank pewled restlessly from the main room. My Hank, Mary Jo thought, her face growing warm. My little Hank. She washed off the butterfly knife in the bathroom sink, then she pierced one of the stuffed condoms at the tip of the blade. The men she and Hank had been mewling for were not nice men. They were cartel men, low-level chiefs with nothing to lose and no conscience to prickle them. Even Hank had confessed to being afraid of them, but his excitement for bigger, better scores once this trip was done overshadowed his crawling fear. Now Mary Jo was possessed of enough fear for the both of them. There was nothing now they could do to Hank, big Hank, but she could conceive of no limits to the things they did to her when she explained how one of the pills had gone and popped. No matter that it had killed her man, forced her to carve him up like a Christmas turkey. Business was business. And failing to live up to a promise was bad business. Sit tight, little man, she called out from the bathroom. Big sis will be along directly. She held the package up to her face, almost oblivious to where it recently came from, and snorted deeply from the opening she made with the knife. Hank's twins started to hiccup, alternatively chirping, belching. Mary Jo inhaled until her lungs were full, held it in and relished the numbing cocaine drip at the back of her throat. And once she recovered, she did it all over again. She was never meant for motherhood, Mary Jo Ford. That was why they took her baby girl away without ever asking her thoughts on the matter. That was why little Hank's best shot had to be somebody else, somebody who didn't mule drugs across the border and dissect her own man to get at the product that was useless to her now. Besides, he wasn't a baby anyway. He was 30-some-odd years old now, just like Hank. Not grown, but no infant. An anomaly, a thing that shouldn't be. Mary Jo figured... She was that, too. Some of us never had a chance, did we? She asked little Hank, curled naked around his impossibly small, impossibly fragile body. 
She licked her lips, the tongue numb, though she could still taste the coppery water from the sink faucet. The broken pill went down easy enough, better with practice. She wasn't sure if it had been one, one of the ones from her or one she cut out of hand. She'd lost track of them. She reckoned he couldn't have it less. Try and cry, little fella, she urged the withered twin, squeezing him as hard as she dared. Her breathing slowed even as her heart raced, thumping like a drug against a drum against her ribs. Try and cry while your big sister has herself a nap. Just a little nap, buddy. Just a little nap. The woman in the parking lot got to hollering again, screeching about perverts and racists, but all Mary Jo could hear as she floated away was the gentle, bubbling warble from the lips of the last thing she expected to cut out of the man she might have loved, but didn't. Thank you. So we, this is our fifth Noir at the Bar Chicago, and sometimes themes tend to naturally occur. <laughs> For anybody that's been to the other ones, it does happen from time to time, and I didn't think we were going to get there with uh, how your story started, but the miracle of life? The childhood? I don't know. Life out of death. So life out of death? There's a whole, it's amazing how it happens every time. I have no idea what Scott's going to read. <laughs> Our fourth and final reader this evening. Um, first of all, was here before any of us, I think, and probably will be here after all of us are gone. I, I think here in the bar. I didn't mean, I didn't mean like in life, but living thing. Scott Phillips was born in Wichita, Kansas, the first of many former hometowns he has defamed in print. Next up is Ventura, California. Scott Phillips. All right, I'm going to read something that's uh, actually nonfiction tonight. Uh, never done that before, uh, but uh, this is a piece from St. Louis's Riverfront Times about a, uh, a Jewish gangster who brought down the Klan in the 20s. Uh, some facts still resist untangling. He was either born in Russia in 1880, by his own account, or in 1881, so writes Wikipedia, or in what's now Lithuania in 1882, his sister's version, or in 1883, according to his gravestone. His name at birth was Sasha Itzik Berger, but everybody called him Charlie. His hideout, the Shady Rest, was situated on Route 13, somewhere between Marion and Harrisburg, Illinois, but there's no agreement among historians and aficionados as to the exact location of the site. What's not in dispute is that he was hanged outside the Franklin County Jail in Benton, Illinois, on Friday, April 13, 1928, for the murder of Joe Adams, the mayor of West City, Illinois, and that he lies buried in Chesed Shell Emmet, a Jewish cemetery on Olives Boulevard in University City, Missouri. Charlie's not defunct state notwithstanding on a cold, dry February night close to 90 years after the last public hanging in the state of Illinois, a cheerful cohort is gathered at the former jail turned museum where Berger spent the last year of his life to see if the old bootlegger has, to say, has anything to say for himself. Benton is a city of about 7,000, located roughly an hour and a half drive east of St. Louis, just south of Rend Lake, right off Interstate 57. This town square, dominated by the Franklin County Courthouse where Berger was tried, is also home to an antique row and a few blocks away is a vintage auto museum. In the early 1960s, George Harrison's sister Louise lived here. And when the Beatles spent two weeks, when the Beatles, singular, Spent two weeks in Benton in 1963, already famous in the UK but unknown here. Harrison played with a local band at a nearby VFW and gave an interview at WFRX Radio in which he played a 45 of She Loves You. WFRX had earlier, thanks to Louise's persistence, become the first station to play a Beatles record on American Airwaves. At the outset, I'd intended to write a straightforward piece about Berger, but I'd made the trip to I made a trip to Benton the week before to take some pictures, and museum volunteer Bill Owens mentioned that a group of ghost hunters 
were coming the following Saturday, and I asked if I might come and talk to them. The Franklin County Jail Museum's reputation for being haunted sprang partly from a series of electronic voice phenomena, or EVP in the parlance of that subculture, that a ghost hunter recorded at the jail in, 19, in 2013. Also, an infrared photo taken from the exterior of the building at that time revealed what looked to some like an image of Charlie Berger himself peering out the window of his cell at the street below. His supposed face, it must be noted, materialized in, the, in a window of the sheriff's living quarters at the front of the building, an area that would have been off-limits to him in life. It's understandable, though, that his ghost might prefer that window to the one adjacent to his cell, which offers a view of a full-scale replica of his gallows, built after the jail was decommissioned in 1990. At one point, in a 10-minute video, the ghost hunter pointed to YouTube in 2013. A disembodied voice whispers, Should I stand by the screen? While the camera is pointed as at the screen window, overlooking the gallows. At various points in the video, other such breathy phrases as, help me, tell me a story, and I can't help it, can be heard, although in, some, in fairness they sound to some ears like the currents of air blowing over the windscreen of a camera. <laughs> the video has been viewed more than 20,000 times. I've been in the building several times in daylight and found the vibe unnerving, and at night, of course, it's considerably eerier. As for my own attitude toward, one th toward such things, a movie producer once asked me, apropos of a script I'd collaborated on about a haunted restaurant, whether I believed in ghosts. No, but I'm scared of them. <laughs> the movie never got made, but I stand by my answer. Tonight's ghost hunters call themselves 618 Paranormal, an affable group of sincere youngish men and women who cheerfully answer my questions as they busy themselves setting up video cameras and audio recording equipment in cell blocks, the old jail kitchen, and the long unused basement which features a door to an underground tunnel that according to legend once led to the county courthouse a few blocks away and then further on into downtown. It was through this tunnel that Charlie would have been led from his cell to the courthouse to stand on trial. Bill Owens up, opens the door, and I peer in to see mops and empty bleach jugs. I take a few flash photographs of the deeper part of the tunnel, but all I capture are some old so soda bottles. Owens points out that the basement was where new prisoners were brought in for in were brought for intake and also for interrogation. For that reason, tonight's group has placed a remote camera down there. Gloomy and dusty as it is now in Burger's day, it certainly saw some grim business. All kinds of ghosts might be down here, or none at all. This raises the question why Charlie Berger's phantom in particular should haunt this building, or why anyone should care one way or the other. He hasn't been forgotten precisely, although his legend has dimmed somewhat over the decades. Older residents of the region still remember stories told by parents and grandparents about the biggest, baddest bootlegger agrarian Illinois ever saw. And there may even remain a handful of elderly witnesses to the hanging, which was so well attended that spectators climbed nearby trees to get a better view of the grisly affair. Lurid pencil illustrations with descriptive typewritten captions of some of, Burger, of the Burger Gang's doing posted around the walls of the two cell blocks may help to explain his continuing relevance. They were made years after the events they depicted by one Harvey Dungey a former member of the gang. He was a talented but untrained artist, and the drawings have a wonderful, naive quality, vivid but stiff, as though Grandma Moses had decided to document armed robberies, bombings, wanton murder. He intended to travel around the region showing the drawings and telling the story of the gang, but the lure of perfidy was stronger than that of art. In 1958, Dungy tried to rob a tavern and was shot to death by a night watchman, leaving behind this remarkable trove of first-hand visual accounts. In early childhood, Charlie Berger, along with his parents, had followed an older brother from Russia to St. Louis, where for a time young Charlie was a post-dispatch newsboy, and later to southern Illinois. This was coal country, then as now, and as Jews and immigrants, the Burgers represented everything a certain element feared and hated about the changing nature of rural America. Formerly Protestant towns like Heron, Benton, and Marion found themselves home to immigrants from the Appalachians, 
from southern and eastern Europe, as well as Ireland and Wales, all come to work in the coal mines. These new citizens' dietary and religious customs did not always jive with local norms. Nor, significantly, did the taste of some of those communities for alcohol. In the years before 1919, before the, when the Volstead Act banned the production and sale of intoxicating liquors across the nation, Charlie was already running a small coal country vice empire. Following his stint as a miner, a soldier, and a cowboy, he had returned to St. Louis, married a woman from East St. Louis. He had three wives in all and two daughters, and opened up and settled down in Harrisburg, where he opened up a saloon called the Near Bar, which also served as a casino and brothel. But it was prohibition that really made Charlie turning him from a small-time small country ga operator into a full-fledged gangster. In the modern imagination, prohibition tends to figure as an urban phenomenon. With rough speakeasies in Chicago and Manhattan sophisticates drinking bathtub gin and sweets at the Algonquin, rural Illinois, though, like most of America, was never going to go without its booze. Charlie and his quickly expanding gang joined forces with the notorious Shelton brothers of neighboring Williamson County to distribute alcohol throughout coal country. For a few years, things went swimmingly for, Berger and for the Berger and Shelton gangs. Charlie was a remarkably charismatic man, good-looking and charming, and he was seen as a hero by many, particularly in Harrisburg, where he made sure the crime rate stayed close to zero. Apart from the vice operation and the occasional shooting, the Burger Gang commuted, committed the bulk of its crimes elsewhere. But by late 1925, things had started going south for Charlie, and when they did, the end came at an astonishing rate of speed. By then, the nativist locals had had it, and membership in the newly reactivated Ku Klux Klan was surging. Klansmen were going door to door to confiscate liquor and arrest, or abduct, since they had no legal standing to do so, anyone caught with it. Office holders seen as soft on bootleggers were replaced by Klan members. Law enforcement in Saline County, home to Harrisburg, was no longer as friendly to Charlie as it had been, so he crossed the line into Williamson County to open up a combination speakeasy, barbecue joint, gas station, and hideout. Called the Shady Rest. If any of you remember Petticoat Junction. <laughs> that, was, that was where they got the name. Um, uh, there was live music, dancing, gambling, and outback cockfights and dogfights. Troubles with the Klan worsened, and the bootleggers were faced with the prospect of losing large sums of money where it operated. Though Berger's relations with the Sheltons had deteriorated considerably, the two gangs managed to join forces one last time in April 1926 at the township election in Heron, Illinois, a notorious hotbed of Klan activity. Rumor on both sides had it that the day would see trouble, and when Catholic voters were turned away from the polls by a, by a prominent local Klansman named John Smith, fistfights broke out. Later in the day, Smith was shot at on the street by an unknown assailant in his garage. He ran a garage, not his garage at his house. Uh, that's an editing problem. Uh, his garage was sprayed with slugs from Tommy guns. The bootleggers had come to defend their customers and their own economic interests. Bullets flew from passing cars and hotel windows, and the National Guard was called in. At the Heron Masonic Lodge, Berger's men pulled up and exited their vehicles, confronting and disarming Klansmen, who had replaced Smith as pole watcher. A nearby Klansman shot Charlie's man. Another Berger ally shot the Klansman, and all hell broke loose. By day's end, three of Berger's men and three prominent Klansmen lay dead. The body count may have been even, but the dead Klan members were higher-ups, and it had become clear that the Tommy gun-toting gangsters had the advantage in armaments. Heron and its surrounding countryside were traumatized, and the KKK's local organization dazed and demoralized. John Smith left town for good. The consensus was that the gangsters had prevailed. The Klan's defeat notwithstanding, relations between the Berger and Shelton gangs were worse than ever. And in the following months, that tension erupted into an all-out war. 
As the bodies started piling up, Charlie took to wearing a bulletproof vest, it's in his cell at the museum, and started driving an armored car. The Shelton's had one of their own, and they needed it. The Shady Rest has the distinction of being the site of one of the first aerial bombing attacks in the United States. The war between gangs had intensified by November 1926 with a bomb thrown at the compound's barbecue stand. Shortly thereafter, the home of Joe Adams, Stutz automobile dealer, mayor of West City, and staunch ally of the Shelton's, was machine-gunned, though no one was injured. In retaliation that same day, an airplane flew over the Shady Rest and dropped three packages of dynamite. The, the historic moment was a bust. Only one package detonated and with no in injuries, though according to Gary Daniel's biography of Charlie Berger, the explosion killed a bulldog and a bald eagle. <laughs> <laughs> but a later, Joe Adams answered his door on Sunday afternoon to two men, one of whom handed him a letter reportedly from the Shelton's while the mayor read the note, one of the men shot him dead. That murder would become the crux of Charlie's downfall. On display in one of the front rooms of the Franklin County Jail Museum is the wicker coroner's basket in which Joe Adams' body was placed the day he died. It was, it was reported that as Charlie Berger was being led to the scaffold, he spat into a similar basket intended to carry his own body back to St. Louis for burial. Charlie was still a free man when, a month after the Adams murder in, 1920, in January 1927, a series of explosions hit the Shady Rest. It burned to the ground with four people inside, presumably associates of Charlie's, though positive identifications were never made. Another burger associate, a crooked Illinois motorcycle cop named Lori Price, who patrolled the patch of Route 13 that passed by the Shady Rest became concerned that Charlie had turned against him. Price then made an ill-advised attempt to collect a $2,500 reward. That was a lot of fucking money back then. <laughs> Offered for information regarding a recent bank robbery in the area, and Charlie got wind of it. On January 7th, 17th, Price and his wife Ethel vanished. Ethel Price had been a young, pretty school teacher on maternity leave, and her disappearance caused a local uproar. The activities of the gangs had grown increasingly violent, and for a well-known and well-liked member of the community, to fall victim to the bloodletting was a shock. Lori's corpse was found on February 5th, but his wife's body was not found until June 13th. She had been shot and dumped into a mine shaft shortly before her husband's execution. When the shooter confessed that June, he, expl he explicitly named Charlie Berger as the man who ordered the hit. By that time, Charlie was in custody, and public opinion, which had long cut him considerable slack for his charm and the goodwill he'd built up since he'd opened the near bar all those years past, had turned resolutely against him. He'd been arrested shortly after the Adams murder and released on bond. He was arrested again a day before one of the trigger men in the lorry killing confessed and fingered him. He was kept separately from the other prisoners in a larger cell where he was allowed certain luxuries such as a gramophone and a collection of records. In a collection of records, the gramophone is still in the cell today. In July 1927, he stood trial for the murder of Joe Adams alongside the two men he'd ordered to commit the crime. The other two received prison sentences but Charlie was sentenced to hang. He spent the next nine months in the Benton jailhouse pending appeals and waiting. When the day came, it was, noticed, it was noted by many in the crowd that Charlie was smiling as he climbed the steps to the scaffold. This may have been bravado, or it may have been the effect of the morphine shot administered shortly before leaving the cell. <laughs> Accompanied by a rabbi, Charlie had a black hood placed over his head. He requested it rather than a white one so as not to be mistaken for a Klansman. <laughs> and the executioner prepared the noose, known as the sympathetic hangman, as a boy, Phil Hanna, had been witness to a bungled hanging that resulted in a prison, prisoner's agonizing 15-minute death by strangulation, and he had taken up the trade, determined to prevent such atrocities. It's a beautiful world were Charlie Berger's last words. I don't know if Charlie haunts the jail or somebody else's ghost or anything at all, but it's a scary, lonely place at night. If there is an afterplace, afterlife, maybe this is an appropriate place for him to remain. 
stuck alone in the same miserable spot he spent the last year of his existence. Two weeks after Paranormal 618's investigation, I call Seth Clark. Yes, he tells me they did get a few last words out of Charlie. The actual gallows act, along with the thick rope used to hang Charlie, was found in a barn in 2013 and purchased by the museum. It lies unassembled with the rope coiled on the stack beams in the old women's cell block on the second floor. Its cell walls long ago painted pink. Pink now curling away in strips from the sick walls and bars. Next to the noose, Seth and Mike place several cameras in what they call a spirit box. The notion behind this device is that by rapidly scanning radio waves, certain sounds will pop up through the white noise as intelligible words. Late in the night of the investigation, several members of the team gathered in the women's cell block and were startled by the squawking of the spirit box, which began making intelligible sounds. The resulting scene was captured on video, which can be watched on the group's YouTube channel. I highly recommend it. Uh, when the group starts discussing who should remain there, up, up there, alone, the box says quite plainly, Miranda. One of the group present at that moment is a young woman named Miranda Stewart. Charlie, do you want me to stay? She asks. The box replies in the affirmative. When she asks if someone can stay with her, the box says, They have to go. But the voices stop, and after a few minutes, it's decided that Mike and Seth will stay, and Miranda will go. Over her shoulder, as she leaves the cell block, Miranda calls out, Bye, Charlie! The box replies, Reconsider. I didn't know I was going to be closing tonight. I didn't really have anything really very well prepared. I, I, a long time ago, I, I did a reading on Los Angeles Public Radio, and I was uh, with my friend Diana Wagman and a comedian named Laura Keitlinger and Tim Kurt. And so Laura Keitlinger read first and left, and then Diana read, and then I read. And I thought I had really kicked ass. I thought I really got out. And then Tim Curry came on, and he fucking destroyed <laughs> everything anybody had said all night. And he was fucking amazing. And afterward, um, he, he said, oh, you were delightful. And I said, no, no, you were fucking delightful. I sucked. I was okay, but I'm really glad. And I was genuinely saying this. I was so fucking glad I went before you. <laughs> And uh, so tonight that didn't happen. I was followed by uh, three people who were like way more fucking prepared. And, uh, Orson, Orson Welles here. Uh, so anyway, uh, I hope you enjoyed it anyway. Thanks for coming. And uh, fuck Peter Rosowski. Yeah! All right, let's have a hand for all of our readers. Jan, Eric, Christian, and Scott. Um, thank you all for coming out. This is great. Uh, it was a terrific reading all around. We have books over here for sale. So see the author and uh, buy some books, get some more drinks. And that's it. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. All right, and that was Rob and Livius. <laughs> bringing you Ed Kurtz and Scott Phillips at Noir at the Bar Chicago. I gotta tell you, the MCs, fantastic. Those guys should host more readings, but they should be much closer to home. Ooh, I see what you did there. I wait. Are you secretly trying to suggest that we should start our own reading series in the suburbs? I think somebody should do a reading series and it should be like like Noir at the Bar Libertyville. <laughs> I'll take Nor at the Bar Lake Zurich. There you go. I, I take Lake Zurich too. Nor at the the small tiny apartment Lake Zurich. Yeah. Can I tell you though that place is mm, ten blocks from where I grew up. I don't know if we I don't yeah. know if we talked about this on the podcast. It's it's literally in the the neighborhood I grew up in. 
Um, which I, I like getting down there occasionally anyway. So I, I like the location we're at. I, I like the bar where we're doing the readings at currently. And uh, it's close to Susie's and that place that has great coffee that we may <laughs> not be welcome at anymore. What if they try to like, what if now that we know what they're up to, they like make us work for them? Like, uh, like, so in, we have uh, to go, we have to go sit in there and be hunched over your iPad for like no, an hour and yeah. people to walk in the door. We'll be like in that TV show, Homeland. Yes, yes, but Homeland. If, I, I gave if, up on Homeland. Yeah, but maybe we get to hook up with Claire Danes. You know, Claire Danes, there's got to be some crazy there. Because <laughs> she does crazy way too well. Do you remember when Claire Danes was just straight up like, just, just like a, a little cutie that was just perfect years yep. ago and there yeah. was no crazy at all? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's her. That's her. I don't think that's her like channeling crazy. I think that's some crazy that they just unleashed like straight up. They're like, Hey, listen, we're going to be filming some of the tougher scenes today. So if you could not take your meds, that would be awesome. <laughs> that's Run coming from it. a place of experience is what you're saying. Yes, exactly. So, All right. I'll take it. <laughs> well, now that we're on the TV shows, what's a, uh, well, what's, I know you're excited about something that's coming up. So I got in this big argument at work today. Um, actually, I wouldn't call it an argument, but um, there's it even came up like it was coming up all day long that there's the new Game of Thrones episode, uh, the new season, I guess, starts tonight, right? Uh, it does. Yes. Three nights ago or so for those of you that are listening to this. But yeah. And um, yeah, good point. At the time of the recording. So I basically just said I don't like it. And then everybody's like, what? Why don't you like it? And then I had to explain myself. And then everybody's like, why is he getting all upset about it? And I'm like, I didn't even want to talk about it. I just said I didn't like the show. So it was one of those situations where, like, I just said I don't like it and then got forced into explaining myself, and then that was the bad guy. Yeah, that's weird because, um, you know, I I feel like there are times where you almost have to explain something. So, like, I think I have a pretty good sense of your taste. Mm-hmm. So if I said, hey, what do you think about this? And you're like, yeah, I don't like it. I could be like, man, Rob, you know, we... we yeah, I'm surprised that you don't like it. Why don't you like it? But yeah, I do think there's a segment of people who, um, and there are a few shows that are like that. Like if you didn't like Breaking Bad, there was something wrong with you too. Yeah. Did you like Breaking or, Bad? No. Well, no, I didn't really. I watched one episode. What? Never mind. I, was going to I see what you did. I see what you did. That'd be like, yeah. So that was awkward. So fuck Game of Thrones. I even told someone my whole thing about how I think George R.R. R. Martin should just stop writing just to piss off the fans. And they were like, what is wrong with you? So once I got pushed, I pushed back a little bit. Well, next Sunday, Penny Dreadful comes back. Oh. And I, do, I do happen to know that that's, uh, that's yeah. definitely, that's definitely your thing. I, I like Penny Dreadful too. I'm very excited about it coming back. Yeah. Excited about that. Very excited about that. Have you watched dice? No. <laughs> okay. So dice clay has a new six part series on, um, Showtime. And um, somebody it's gave me all six it. episodes. So they're only on episode three, I think, airs tonight. Uh, like opposite Game of Thrones. Because, you know, that's, that's a good idea. Good. Yeah. <laughs> they're a little, they're slightly different show types of shows. Um, it's Dice trying to become the king in this kind of science fiction fantasy. No, it's not. It's, it's the show <laughs> where Dice plays himself as a um, former comedian, as himself, you know. But okay. he's uh, dating a girl, he's living in Vegas, and it's kind of him trying to, to make ends meet and kind of work through some situations. I got to tell you, the first episode was terrible, and I loved it. <laughs> and I've not watched episodes two and three and four, and it's getting, it's getting even better. Tons of cameo appearances, great stuff if you're an old school Dice Clay fan like I myself am, who I, I saw him in his heyday in like 88 or 89. Hmm. At a sold out Rosemont Horizon, um, which doesn't happen for comedians very often that you sell out places, you know, where rock bands play. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of fun that show. I don't, I don't quite think it's for everybody, but I, I find myself talking with a little bit of that Brooklyn Jewish accent after, after watching an episode. So, put on my leather jacket, nursery rhymes, the whole nine yards. Oh, and you're like putting your cigarette in your mouth, like from wrapping your arm around your head or whatever that stupid move was that you thought was yes, so cool. Yes, absolutely. You know how much harder that is to do when you're on e-cigs? <laughs> you can't, yeah, you can't. I just want you to your... think about this for a second. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to vape like a giant mod in your hand wrapped around your head. 
Oh, I watched it. I watched it because it made me a little less sad because there was sad news. And, and I'd like to thank, I'd like to thank Adam, whose legs don't work, who, who thought of, of me in, in this tough time. What did he, did he send you something else? Yes. Yeah. He sent me, he sent me another edible arrangement. Didn't you get one? He's dead to me. Oh, you know what? Insult to injury. Not only is he not sending me stuff, I find out he is coordinating my 20th high school reunion. Did he invite you? Because I got an invitation. <laughs> you know what? It's funny. He did ask me my advice about some stuff, but I haven't been invited yet. So, Because well, I was going to bring you as my plus one. So, No, he called. He called us and left a voicemail. Do you not check the booked voicemail? He left a, voice, a voicemail about Prince? Yes. Hold, no, I, I this, 100% this would be a good did not place notice. to just insert it into the episode, I guess. Wait, do I get to listen to it first? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's, Son it's of a bitch. Big. Wait, how about I just read the Google Translate? <laughs> That's even better sometimes. Hi, guys. This is Adam Nash Ignatius. <laughs> Please don't wear. And I'm just calling with my condolences for the passing, this very important happening of both China and the Prince. <laughs> I don't know whether they're going to do this week. I'm, I'm, I hope you have an important place, an important in place that he needs to get through a week and find a way to read. It's got to be better than what I'm reading. It is better, but, um, no, we did not find a way to put this aside and actually read a book this week. Hi guys, this is Adam and Ash, Ash's legs don't work. And, uh, I'm just calling with my condolences for, uh, the passing, the very unfortunate passing of, uh, both China and the Prince. Uh, I don't know what Lydia is going to do this week. I I hope he has the, the support in, in place that he needs to get through a week and uh, find a way to read the next book and do a podcast for the rest of us. Uh, it's a, a tough time for him, I'm sure. So I hope hope you're doing well and uh, chin up, buddy. Son of a bitch. Why didn't you tell me there was a voicemail? You voicemail. Because I figured you get the same notification that I do. I don't know. I don't even know anymore. It's Google. <laughs> Google doesn't make any sense. So thank you, Adam, for thinking of me in my time of need. You're greatly appreciated. And yes, I will be at your 20th high school reunion. Can you at least tell everybody how I'm doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'll play clips from the show. Uh, Is it only? It's only 20 years for you, huh? Only 20? 20 is a lot. Yeah, it is. I, I don't think we didn't have a 25th reunion. So I, I got an invitation to join a group for my high school's 25th reunion. Actually, I take that back. That's not what happened. I saw one of my classmates post scoping out a location for the reunion. Mm-hmm. So I commented in the post, you know, and said, hey, would you please add me to whatever list or, you know, like I'm totally interested in, in my 25th reunion. Um, they said, yeah, absolutely. And I got added to like a group. That there were zero posts in. It's we're now on like nine months since this happened, since they scoped out this location. There is zero danger of them listening to this podcast. So no. hey, um, thanks for tuning in to Noir at the Bar, <laughs> installment of Noir at the Bar Chicago. Um, I'm gonna let you promise the next episode because I'm tired of being made into that guy. The guy who says, Hey, here's what we're doing next, and then it doesn't happen. So I'm I'm gonna let you talk about the next episode. So, on the next episode, you'll be hearing our review of Les Edgerton's book, Bomb. Takes place in a coffee shop in Chicago. <laughs> Damn. Um, although, we should go there and read that book. Like, <laughs> I get the feel. Covers so out, we, you know? Yeah, we have digital copies. So, mm. I think that would be a really funny and insulting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. But yeah, that'll be our next episode, 100%. I promise that. And guess what? You're going to be able to listen to it in many, many places, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spreaker, and now YouTube as well. Wait, can we add one more to that list? God damn it. I already made a logo. What, what's the I, other one? I know. Google Play Podcasts. I said Google Play. Did you? Yeah. Oh, okay. Never mind. So no, but I didn't say bookedpodcast.com. Oh yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, that's what you meant. I'm hoping Google just buys bookpodcast.com. I'll tell you, we'll sell it to them cheaper than YouTube did. <laughs> Wait, I'm I'm not selling for less than a billion. 
Well, yeah, I'd let it go for a lot, lot less than that. Like 80 bucks? <laughs> Not 80 bucks. <laughs> let me put it to you this way. I'm not gonna. Never mind. I just thought. I just thought about the implications of what I was gonna say about bidding on on podcast names. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not gonna go that route. All right. Uh, what I will say is, um, I'm sure. I'm sure that. So throw it out there. Really, what what would you be willing to sell the podcast for? Oh, I don't know because it means I'm gonna like publicly put a value on our podcast. Yeah, I can do that. Seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Oh, see, I was gonna say a million, so I don't feel so bad now. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's I'm undercutting you and selling it out from under you for a little less. Son of a bitch. I know, right? <laughs> so. We would take that three quarters of a million and just start a different podcast. We would. We, we would take like 35 bucks of that money and or start you, another podcast. YouTube like channel. With this one. Yeah, YouTube. YouTube channel. So, yeah, hey, listen. Speaking of which, we realize you don't have to listen to our podcast in a hundred different places where we're uh, hoping to pick up some new um, audience members or make it easier for for those of you who may be um, you know, don't don't use iTunes, you know, to give you some options. Um, but we would like to ask that you go to our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash book podcast. Sure. And subscribe. And here's why. You don't have to listen to it there. We realize that's not terribly convenient, but there will be video content. There will likely, when we didn't talk about this before the episode, there will likely be some live video content, hopefully sometime this week. Damn right. Or next week. But either way, before the end of the month. We're looking at having some video content. <laughs> I just feel good that you're making harder promises than the one that I made about us reading and reviewing a book next week. That's very true. So at any rate, go subscribe <laughs> so you get notifications on when we have video content so you can join our live stream that's going to be happening here very shortly. That's right. Thanks so much for checking out Noir at the Bar, Chicago, number five, parts one and two. Join us next episode for... 100% guaranteed review of Les Edgerton's book of bomb. Until then, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading. <laughs>